Hey, welcome to night school. Catching my breath after running across a busy road here. But I, uh, I was thinking about, you know how, you know, the idea of misery, you know, kind of brings out this need to connect with people sometimes. We're sharing your misery. Or there's the quote, misery loves company, which I've turned around on here. I have my own version of that quote, which is that, no, misery doesn't love company. Misery hates company, but it invites it in anyway. And it complains about the last company it had. And then you eventually leave because misery doesn't want to hear what you have to say. Misery invites you in, but it doesn't actually want to hear what you have to say. It wants to complain about everything going on in its own world to you. And the second you start commiserating and complaining about what's going on in your life, misery shows you the door. And then whoever comes in next gets to hear about how obnoxious you were. That's, to me, in my experience, that's a more accurate illustration of misery than misery loves company. Although misery loves company probably sums it up a lot easier. No, misery hates company and invites it in anyway. But, you know, there is something to that where some people do like to share their misery. They like to be with other people. Because, I mean, not all misery is mean. You know, it can often lead there. But not all misery is, is mean-spirited. It doesn't always make somebody mean-spirited mean spirited, uh, when they're miserable. But... You know, there's a certain sort of person, you know, no matter what their disposition is, if they're miserable, they want to know that other people are miserable and they can, you know, whether it's just to commiserate or to lean on them for support, it's just, that's what some people seek. But there's another type of person who, uh, they want their misery to be unique. They want to experience a unique misery. And I think these people are often creative. And I think that that itself is a creative action, wanting to make your misery unique. It's not necessarily productive, but it is creative. And there is a distinction between those two things. But yeah, that desire to be like, I'm experiencing something miserable, but I want it to be my own. And I first became aware of this, you know, I didn't have these thoughts about it at the time, but I first had the sort of feeling I'm getting at here when I was in high school. And I, I had a friend of mine who did not have a significant psychological disorder, I'll say. This person didn't have a significant psychological disorder. I wouldn't classify this person as mentally ill. Maybe depressed, I don't know where depression fits on that. But when I say mental illness, I mean something that's like truly debilitating and colors their perception of the world, which depression does, but still, that's not so much what I'm talking about here. And this friend was going through a rough time. You know, there was some normal teenage depression, some of the wallowing that goes along with that. And there was, you know, a couple bad things happen, a couple deaths close to this person. So there's plenty of reason to be miserable in that situation. 
But it was interesting because like, I look back at that and this person went through a period where I felt that they manufactured this persona that was more... Uh, they, they basically created this kind of schizophrenic persona for themselves. And this was around the time, too, that in pop culture, movies like A Beautiful Mind were coming out. So let's say this is about 2003. Let's, let's put this between 2002 and 2004. 2001 or 2004. Between 2001 and 2004. Those are the years that I was in high school. So let's put it somewhere in that period. You had A Beautiful Mind came out, which... What's so beautiful? What's so beautiful about his mind? He's good at math. He's schizophrenic and he's good at math. Oh, beautiful. It's just beautiful. Should be called an ugly mind. That guy's Russell Crowe's got an ugly mind. But movies like that came out. There was also that one Memento, which wasn't about mental illness, but it was about amnesia. And I feel like all of these played a role in you know the the idea that like being crazy was a better way to be miserable i just kind of picked up on that and i felt that this person i i knew who is an awesome person but they i i felt that they kind of manufactured this persona to make their miserable to make their misery more unique and you know what i probably did that too in my own way I wouldn't have thought of myself as miserable at the time, but I think about little embarrassing things I was doing at the time. Things I was saying, things that I was probably pretending to be interested in. You know, so much of it's just normal teenage stuff, but... You know, it was around that time, though, that it's like this idea of... Insanity... Or more specifically, let's go with just schizophrenia. Like the idea of like the the, schizo, the schizophrenic visionary was kind of picking up steam. Or the idea that having a mental illness made your creativity more valid. That was big too. And I think people are all, have always been aware of that. But you really saw it, you really saw it enter pop culture at that time. And I don't believe previous generations of teenagers would have even considered that. That, oh, I can pretend to be crazy or crazier than I really am. And it does become this chicken or the egg thing where it's like, if somebody is pretending to be crazy or pretending to be crazier than they actually are, isn't that a sign that they themselves are just crazy? And I would say, yeah, it's a sign that something is wrong. Like, if somebody feels the need to kind of manufacture a persona that's... You know, just trying to give people the impression that your brain is more haywire than... Jesus, sprinklers. <laughs> just got hit with a sprinkler unexpectedly. Um, but, uh... If, uh... <laughs> distraction here. No, but if you're trying to give the impression to people that you're more, your brain is just way more out there than it actually is. And, and you're communicating that by like feigning a mental illness that you saw in a movie or read about. Or you're a, you know, even if you're like a Pink Floyd fan, you're aware of that stuff. It's not even something that, you know, requires like some niche subcultural interest. Like you can just be a Pink Floyd fan and know about the idea of the 
the mad artist. I mean, there was a, a class at my college that I almost took, but I'm kind of glad I didn't. It was called Madness and Creativity, and it speaks for itself. I have no idea what they actually covered, but obviously they were exploring exactly what I'm talking about here. This correlation between not just madness and creativity, but madness and unique, innovative, powerful creativity. And here's the thing. There are a bunch of crazy people who have created amazing things in part because they're crazy. Like their insanity, however you want to diagnose it, I'm just going to call them all insane. Um, that contributed to what they did. But do you know how many people are insane that create awful art? Like, do you know how many people there are out there who are schizophrenic and what they do just sucks? And it's like I was saying in an episode recently, I was like, there are crazy people and there are cool crazy people and there are uncool crazy people. Like, there are people who are diagnosed schizophrenic who say things that are off the wall, but there's something compelling about it. There's something maybe even truthful about it. Something insightful and unique and powerful. And it could just be something they say offhanded. But that doesn't mean just any time a schizophrenic person is going off, you're like, that's amazing. Because you just walk through downtown and you hear what some of the people on the street are saying. And you're like, oh, that's just like gibberish word salad. They might as well be reciting beat poetry right now. But you, so it's like there, there's a, I don't know what to call it, but it's like you're able to differentiate, at least I am. In the same way I'm, all, I'm able to differentiate anything, like good music versus bad music, stuff that fits my taste, stuff that appeals to me. Maybe that's a better way to put it. But it's like I can tell if somebody is actually on, you know, whether, whether it makes sense to me or not. Whether it's truly insane or not, I can tell if they're on to something. Even if it's based on their own internal logic, I can tell if what they're saying is compelling. And the opposite is true too, where it's like if somebody's just going off, you hear somebody going off, you can tell if what they're saying is interesting or not by the simple fact that you're interested in it. And the same is true for creativity from anybody, of course, but it's like there's this idea out there, this kind of trope that people suffering from bouts of madness are more interesting and more iconoclastic when it comes to creativity in the arts. And I, I do think there's kind of a bias there where you notice it when that's the story but what you don't notice is all of the just terrible bottom level stuff that you don't see, <laughs> you know? And that's always, that's always something to be aware of. But it has kind of become this trope. So it's, it's no surprise that by the time my generation were teenagers, that, uh, that teenagers knew, especially teenagers who are creative people, creative thinkers, if nothing else. I don't necessarily mean like artists or anything, but just creative thinkers. It makes sense that some of them would think, okay, I can make my misery more unique by going, by taking this approach. Instead of just being another dime a dozen 
you know, instead of being just another dime a dozen angsty teenager, I can make people think there's something more going on. And, you know, I probably did that in my own way, too. Not to the extreme that the person I'm talking about did, because they were medicated with a medication that didn't, not only didn't work because they didn't need that medication, it fucked them up for a little while. And there's, there's a whole wild situation revolving around this person manufacturing or exaggerating. Maybe that'd be a better way to put it. And like I said, I don't blame this person because they're cool. And I think they were responding to something going on. Like I was saying before, it's like, you know, somebody who feels the need to exaggerate or manufacture a mental illness probably has some kind of mental illness, even if it's not the one they're talking about, or, or even if it's not the one they're, uh, they're trying to present to the world. And that itself is a whole thing. And, and you, you, know, you can see where that's kind of the product, too, of those words and ideas becoming popularized. Like I was saying, there were more movies dealing with that subject. And, you know, pop psychology was already entering the mainstream at that point. People are familiar with the different diagnoses. They're familiar with what those, what the symptoms of those diagnoses are. So it was all available for people. It all became available for people. And, uh, you know, it goes back too, to a conversation I had with my friend Miles when he moved here. So this is about 16 years ago. And he was saying, we were having a conversation about this exact subject because it's not new to, to either of us. We've always been aware of this. You know, even if I don't have necessarily the, even if I didn't have the same words I had, even if, even if at that time I didn't have the words I have for it now, I was aware of, of this. And so Miles and I naturally talked about it. And I remember him saying he doesn't believe in mental illness. He just thinks people are smart and depressed. And that resonated with me because I had just seen that happen. I had known somebody who was smart and depressed and sort of exaggerated or even manufactured this sort of really crazy persona for a while. And so that resonated with me. And again, it's, it's what I was just saying a minute ago. It's, it's trying to make your misery unique. And I think when a smart person just has demons going on, just a, a darkness, a depression, I think that in order to make that theirs, I don't know. I don't know what the motivation is. I, I wouldn't know. I think it varies. But it's just that the common theme that I've seen, because since then, since that time, I've seen other people kind of play this game. And it seems to be a way of making, you know, your your ailments unique to you. It's like it, you're like customizing your misery. It's kind of how I see it. And people will outgrow that, you know, if they get a handle on their life, like my friend, completely outgrew that. And I'm not going to share any personal details, but like you couldn't actually be further from that thing. Like, like the way his life has gone as an adult, he couldn't be further away from, you know, a babbling schizophrenic. And something was going on with him and he kind of found a theatric way of dealing with it that ended up having repercussions for him for a while. 
you know, it's kind of like the, a boy who cried wolf that maybe not, maybe not the boy who cried wolf, but it's just a sort of thing where it's like, sometimes the thing you want is, is going to be the worst thing for you. Like you wanted people to start thinking you were crazy and then they started treating you like you were crazy and trying to put you on medication or making you go to this place, this facility, go see this doctor. You know, it just ends up being probably not the, the romantic idea that you expect it to be, to say the least. But yeah, customizing your own misery. I mean, I do relate to that myself. I mean, everything that I'm talking about here, I, I understand it and I relate to it in my own way. Because, I mean, it's something that we kind of do with everything, you know, that just customizing our experience. And we like to feel like it's, it's the jewel thing, too, you know. I mean, that's the thing about, you know, darkness and misery is that you can start thinking that itself is a jewel. And when you try to make your misery unique or customize it, you're tricking yourself into thinking that that's desirable. Rather than trying to do something unique and interesting away from that darkness, you end up trying to make that darkness unique and interesting, but in doing so, you give it that much more power over you. You make the cloud that much thicker over your head. And you see people do that all the time, where they're, they're trying to shine their misery up. They're like... Misery is a jewel, and I need it to be extra shiny, and I need it to feel like it's mine, my misery. My misery is my own. You know, it's that sort of idea, and it's, it's the endless pursuit of jewels, but turned around in, in the most self-destructive way, where you're trying to polish something up that is going to eat away at you and maybe even destroy you. Because, you know, that sounds very dramatic, and it is. I like being dramatic. I really do. I found that I really like sounding dramatic when I talk. <laughs> I'm not lying. Uh, but, uh, you know, it sounds dramatic, but it's actually not. Like, what I'm saying is not as dramatic as it sounds, because I know a lot of people who have kind of gotten attached to a certain persona. And again, I'm probably talking about myself, too, in certain ways. But, like, I know people who have gotten attached to a self-destructive persona. And, you know, I mean, what else needs to be said? What else needs to be said other than getting attached to your self-destructive person persona is going to destroy you. You're going to get what you want. And I guess that's what I was getting at, too, with... You know, because I think the problem with trying to, like, customize your, your own misery or, you know, trying to make your misery unique to you to satisfy your ego or do whatever it is you're trying to do to make it feel like it's yours uh, is that the more unique your misery becomes, the more customized your misery becomes, the more attached you become to it. You actually don't want your misery to be wholly yours. You do not want to feel proud of the way that you've shaped or crafted your misery. But people do that. 
And I don't even know that they're always aware of it, but they do that all the time. They become attached. Like using the example of my friend who went through this phase where he was really trying to craft a very unique shape for his misery. He didn't stay attached to it, thank goodness. He did not get attached to it. He was able to let go of that. I don't know. I've never, I've never even talked to him about it. I don't even know if there was a moment. I don't know what it was. He just phased out of it. But I know people who, who haven't done that. I know people who haven't phased out of... Like, they, they've remained attached to their misery because they feel that they, they put so much work into it. <laughs> and I don't know if they would ever admit that. But you can see that, and you see it a lot with creative people. You see it a lot with artists and musicians. Because it is one of those things, you know, where you can fake that until you make it. You can pretend to be crazy until you actually do become crazy. Because I guarantee you, act crazy for a year straight. You'll probably be a little crazier than you were before. If not completely. If you spend a year of your life trying to act like you're so far out there, so far out there, you know, you very well might get out there and stay out there. You know, it can become a habit. Being crazy can become a habit. And so you always have to be careful of that. Being depressed can become a habit. And, you know, I don't relate to just, you know, you know, straight up de depression or anything like that. Um, but I understand, you know, I think I do understand it. Hey, dogs. Um, I, I do think I understand it. And I've been through depressive episodes. I mean, I'm today I'm feeling pretty depressed, actually, uh, for no specific reason. But just, you know, it is a, it's a sort of a circumstantial or situational thing for me, not a clinical... Um, but people become attached to that. I've known people. I was very close to somebody, a woman who was depressed, and so was her entire friend group. And all of their mantras, and they had excuses for it, you know. Some of them, I, I feel like, took maybe took a little more responsibility. But there were, there were these mantras and, and these sort of... Just the way they talked in general, everything reinforced their depression. Every single thing they said to each other, they didn't empower each other. Like, on one, like they kind of used the idea that like, oh, talking about your depression and that removes the stigma and makes it better. But no, what you ended up with was a social group where in order to be a member, in order to be accepted, you almost had to be depressed. So the idea of bettering yourself, and, you know, some of this might be my own interpretation, you know, some of it could be, but it's a sort of thing where, where I saw where, you know, these, these people are just, are just keeping it alive and reinforcing it, you know, and I think a part of them is kind of afraid to, you know, change their 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 outlook or, you know, improve themselves because they're worried that, they're not going to fit in with their group of friends and you know what the reality is they might not they might not fit in with their group of friends because 
when you start to feel better, those little negative mantras, those little things that you share as these like fake self-deprecating jokes, like one of them is like, oh, I, I can barely take care of a houseplant, let alone myself. It's all of this like fake self-deprecating humor. And it really just reinforces this dark cloud. And uh, I don't know, I mean, I, I'm kind of need to refocus here, but it was just weird to witness that where it was like, I got the impression from this group of people that to not be depressed, and I don't think these are horrible people, I don't think these are mean-spirited people, but it kind of, I got the feeling that, you know, to not be depressed or to not be weighed down by something like that would be an act of betrayal to that social group. And that was years ago. And I don't think that I was aware at the time of how widespread that either was or how widespread it would become. I didn't completely expect that to be the currency of an entire generation. And so it's not just about being attached to your own unique depression because it's yours and you think it's a part of your identity. It's that now you have a social identity based on that too. Now you have this social identity where your friends, they have a certain way of talking. There's a certain tone and it's a self-defeating tone. It's actually defeating for everybody. And there's a lot of emphasis on self-care, but self-care isn't self-maintenance. It's these indulgences. I go self-care, you know, uh, gonna have a bubble bath with a glass of wine and a, a tub of ice cream, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing, which like you should do for yourself on occasion. I mean, like I've mentioned on here before, like I'll just, I'll just binge eat like an animal. Sometimes I eat like a dog who thinks it's never going to get food again. Seriously. I will go all out. I will make myself physically sick with the amount of food that I'll eat in a sitting. Not throw up sick, but just like pain. It's horrible to do that. But it's also something I feel like I need to do. Sometimes, you know, my discipline is has been in place for long enough and it's such an, a core part of, of what I do these days that, you know, it's not that big of a deal to do that. Like, if you ever saw, like, The Rock, like, he's, he's shared, like, his cheat meals and things like that, and it's obscene. But that's the whole idea, is that he just goes all out. I don't, I don't think in terms of cheat meals, you know, I don't think in terms of cheat meals, I don't think in terms of, like, steps, or I don't weigh myself. I don't care about my pants size. You know, I don't count my calories. You know, I don't do any of that stuff because when I got into fitness, I didn't. I, I said I'm not going to be like that because that takes all of the glory out of it for me. That's just me. If, if those things work for somebody else, there's no shame in that. Like if you lose a hundred pounds after getting a Fitbit. And don't just, and I mean, I don't care, I, I couldn't care less about weight loss. There's way too much of a focus on weight loss. But it's like, if you just get physically fit, I think fitness is my, how I view things. Rather than weight, are you fit? You don't have to be fit, but 
you know, if somebody lost 100 pounds, whatever it is, if they accomplished something they wanted to accomplish, again, let's get away from weight. Just if you developed a discipline because you got a Fitbit, good for you. Like, absolutely good for you. That's incredible. I might make jokes about steps. I might make jokes about the idea of checking your weight, points, whatever system people want to use. If that works for you, that works for you. And if something works for you, nothing anybody says can take that away. There's people who would poke holes in my routine. And I see them all the time. They're not just phantoms that I imagine. I see it online. I'll pay attention to these people who are into fitness. And they're always pointing out something that other people are doing wrong. Something that they could do better. Oh, you you shouldn't use dumbbells. You should use a, a, a keto bell, whatever the fuck it's called. A, a kettlebell. <laughs> a keto bell. Uh, might as well be called a keto bell. It pro- those are probably amazing too, though. I'm not knocking kettlebells. I'm just saying that you'll you'll pick up on those little things where somebody has this hardline opinion about how if you want to be a truly fit man, you got to use a kettlebell, man. You got to use a kettlebell. Dumbbells are old-fashioned. Meanwhile, you look at like old-fashioned bodybuilders and they look cool. They don't look like 24-hour fitness bodies. Because, I mean, again, it's great. If, if going to 24-hour fitness and getting one of their physical trainers who's been trained in a highly specific way to get highly specific results, and you get those results and you feel good, who, who can take that away from you? But I know that, like, when I got into fitness, like, I didn't want to just be, like, a 24-hour fitness body. Because, like, you'll see, you'll see people who are, you know, incredibly in shape... But it's like you can see that like that's a 24-hour fitness routine. They're the product of a, a 24-hour fitness physical trainer. Again, good for them. I just didn't want to just do that. I didn't want to like, I you know I had to experiment. That's what it comes down to. I had to experiment. But it's a, you know, it, it goes back to the discipline idea, and I don't want to go off on a too big of a fitness rant here. I'm not an expert. But going back to the depression thing. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? I mean, all of this is related. I don't remember exactly how I got here. But going back to the depression idea and, you know, you're reinforcing a certain behavior. Your social group is reinforcing a certain behavior. And that in and of itself becomes a weird discipline. That in and of itself is a habit. And I mean, you have to break those, and sometimes that's difficult. Like, if you have a relationship with somebody, and that relationship is based on misery and nothing else, your your care and love for that person will kind of like, you know, it'll, it'll tell you like, oh, well, it's more important to keep this person in your life So even though the only thing you can talk about is being depressed and miserable and negative and how much you hate everything, just talk to them about that stuff because you don't want to lose this friend. And I would agree with that. I don't don't feel like you should ever get rid of your friends. Even Even if you've gone through some kind of transformation and your priorities are different or your... your attitude is different, I don't think you should ever just get rid of people. Uh, and even people who you don't want in your life because they're quote-unquote toxic and all of that, it's not that hard to just ignore people. 
And there's people in my life like that where I had enough experience with them, especially locally, you know, where there's just people and you just realize, oh, everything that's going on with them, it's always the same story. Again, it's misery. It's, it's a miserable person who, you know, wants to, it's a miserable person who wants everybody else around them to stay on that level because they don't know anything else. And they, they're looking for a blow up because those sorts of people experience a lot of blow ups, a lot of confrontations. And, uh, Make sure. Just a sec, just checking for something. Uh, and you know, and because of that, it's like they're hungry for it. They already have like a built-in capacity for blow-ups and confrontations and long drawn-out arguments and just conflict and gossip. Like they already have a capacity built in because they do that. They've actually developed a discipline. But it's a negative discipline. It's a horrible discipline. A horrible discipline. Like they have a system in place. It's just, it's a really sick and twisted system. So the best thing you can do is just not even participate. You don't even want to participate. Um, but, uh, no, it, it can be troublesome though when it's like your relationship with somebody is based on commiserating. Like I've, I've had people before where our friendship was based on the fact that we both complain about our boss. You know, you have a coworker, and you develop trust and a rapport with them because, oh, here's somebody that I can complain to about work. But if your relationship is based entirely on that, you end up having this really nasty little relationship where everything you say to each other is something even if it's even if it's deserved like even if your boss does suck you just you now have a relationship that revolves around that and you realize that when that's no longer there you're not friends you're not necessarily enemies or anything but you realize oh yeah you know i don't really have that strong of a rapport with them they were just somebody that i could talk shit with and so you will find yourself in situations where you end up talking shit or even just let's get, let's get away from like just negativity. You end up talking about things you don't like. It could be you moving on. Like you, you've moved on to other parts of your life. And it's just like, oh yeah, you know, I don't have an interest in hearing about this. I mean, you'll hear parents say this. Or just anyone who's getting older. Where they'll say, oh yeah, you know, I don't, I don't really care to like hang out at a party. And listen to people just talk about partying while they're at a party, you know, because those are the sorts of situations that, you know, as you get older, you're just like, oh, yeah, you know, I got this out of my system. And I think you can see kind of depression and just misery in general the same way, where I think it is something you need to experience. Hopefully not in, you know, hopefully nothing catastrophic, you know, hopefully it's not mis a catastrophic misery. But I think going through a period of misery and kind of learning how that works can only benefit you later, as long as you're willing to let it go, as long as you don't depend on it, as long as you don't make the mistake that misery is a core part of your identity. Because that's so easy to do. And the thing is, there's always been plenty of opportunity to be miserable. It's built in. 
Nature provides a certain amount of misery. And it's not always fair in how it distributes it. But there's huge parts of nature that are miserable. And so it will be available to you. Like if you, if you decide not to be miserable anymore, and it's not just a purely mental decision. Again, you should, there are things, like there are people who, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you have to trust people sometimes. People have gotten really weird about physical fitness because of the implications it has on like body types and uh, all this stuff. But it's like people who work out, like nobody who's developed a discipline around working out ever tells you they regret doing it. They'll tell you they regret not doing it. They'll tell you they didn't want to do it today and they did it anyway. And not only do they not regret it, they're so happy and they feel so much better that they did it. They feel happier than they would if they wanted to do it. I mean, I had one of those days today. Today was just, I, I just did not feel like lifting weights. And I did it and I, I did it a little more intensely than usual. Like I tried to speed it up, you know, and you don't want to get injured. I mean, that's always the risk. You know, you'll regret an injury, but that's a different story. I was just talking to somebody about this, how it's like, you know, you might regret getting injured. Like, oh, I pushed myself too hard. Like there were, like when I was running a lot, you know, I'm not running so much right now, uh, but when I was running all the time for years, I injured my legs like two or three times, two times that were significant enough to like sideline me for a while. And uh, I regretted that because I was like, oh yeah, I shouldn't have, uh, I shouldn't have gone today. I've, I pushed myself too hard as a result. You know, my body wasn't working properly. I pulled a muscle. I strained something. I regretted that, but it wasn't, that's a different form of regret than like regretting doing this thing that's good for you. Um, and you'll never meet anybody who works out regularly, who has any kind of fitness system in place in their life, who tells you they regret it after, after they do it. And you won't hear them talk about regretting it long-term either. And pay attention to other things like that. You'll hear it from people who eat, you know, a decent diet. You'll hear it from people who meditate. Like, I don't want to meditate sometimes, but if I do, even if I can't get in the right state of mind, like even if I'm distracted, I never regret just taking the time to sit there for 20 minutes. There's never been a single moment where I've ever regretted taking the time to sit for 20 minutes and, and at least try to meditate. I've never once regretted doing my workout. I've never once regretted a certain dietary choice that's good for me, that's good for my lifestyle. Does it mean I stick to that all the time? No, of course not. I was just talking about how I'll binge eat like a freaking animal. But those are things to pay attention to. Look for the things that are just... The people who do them consistently universally praise them, even after years of doing them. They universally praise them, and they never ever express any regret. They never regret doing those things, and that's been important to me.
I've kind of used that idea as a guiding light for myself. Partially because, you know, I do have this desire to make things unique to me, you know. That's why I understand the idea of, like, making your misery unique to you. I have that same bug. I have that same bug that other people have that says, you know, I've got to customize this a little bit. I've got to decorate it in some way that makes it mine. And is that ego? Sure. I don't think the ego is as bad as people make it out to be, if you're aware of it. That's sort of like one of the, the funny parts of pop psychology is just the idea that like ego has this horrible, horrible connotation. Not even in pop psychology. I mean, you look at Eastern religion, the way the ego is dealt with. But to be fair, you know, the way that, say, Buddhism deals with ego... I don't think that it treats it any worse than it does anything else. It's just that a lot of other things depend on ego. So when something like Buddhism addresses ego, it's an easier way of, <laughs> it's an easier way of including every little thing that your ego influences. But it's funny to me like in the pop psychology sense where it's like, oh, he's got a big ego. A lot of ego. You know, it's this, it's this very abstract idea that we just sort of take for granted, like we understand it. And I don't know that I do. And it's as good of a term for that thing as anything is. But that what, what a big, expansive idea that is of the ego. And, uh, but yeah, in pop psychology, you see where like, it, the way people talk about it, you'd think it was the worst thing in the world. And, you know, and, it, and it can be pretty bad, you know, it, like, you know, if it's not managed properly, it can be, you know, the, the, I mean, the worst things can come from a poorly managed ego, but there's a lot of fun to it as well. You know, it also motivates you to do good things. I mean, it goes back to the Bible quote, all is vanity. You know, you could say all is ego, too. Pretty much, it means the same thing as far as just the, the language of our times go. All is vanity. Might as well just be saying, yeah, it's all ego. But it's like, that doesn't necessarily have to be bad. It's just that when it becomes too apparent, like when the ego becomes too obvious... It gives us a bad taste in our mouths, but it's a familiar bad taste because it's something we recognize about ourselves, too. But it doesn't have to be a completely bad idea, and it can be used for good. It's just that, you know, when you do something good and satisfy your own ego, like you don't, it doesn't change the fact that you did something good. And, you know, I don't think it's such a bad exchange to feel good about yourself. Like, it's one thing to brag about something, but it's like, I don't think it's so horrible to just feel good about yourself for doing something, to think that you are a better person for doing something good. Even though that is, in some sense, stroking your ego, I don't think it's such a horrible thing to give yourself a little pat on the back now and again. People think that that's the worst thing in the world. Just because some people do it too much, and I think I do, but some people, some people like me do it a little too much, and that kind of 
makes people forget <laughs> there's, there's an entire spectrum of ego um, but yeah just the attachment to you know a negative state of mind and if that's socially reinforced or if you have some kind of you know if you depend on it in some way I mean I this is something you know I have no experience with but like somebody who you know their income depends on that sort of image or identity where it's like somebody who let's say becomes a famous musician and their entire identity revolves around misery that's it becomes a literal form of currency for them like even though I'm talking here about like misery being social currency it's it becomes a very real currency for some people where their income or their profession depends on that. It's like you got what you asked for, but is it really what you asked for? And people get real upset when someone changes their tune. Like when somebody who was, like just in music, for example, like someone who was known for doing edgier, darker material, like if they have a makeover... If they find God, you look at like Dave Mustaine finding God, and he wouldn't even play older songs. After Dave Mustaine was reborn, he wouldn't play older songs. And then somebody, somebody from some other band told him, like, you could just change the lyrics. Because the thing was, is like some early Megadeth material, it has just like, I don't remember if there's anything like explicitly satanic, but you at least have, there's some black magic themes, there's some darker stuff. And after Dave Mustaine was reborn, he didn't feel comfortable doing those songs. And someone was like, just change the lyrics and you can play them again. And so he, he did exactly that. But that's an example, you know, where it's like, if you play in a band like Megadeth, if you're Dave Mustaine, you know, everybody knows you as this asshole who you know, uses drugs, you know, pisses people off. Your music is negative. But you go through some kind of transformation. I mean, you see it with... Uh, I mean, there's even more obscure stuff like MB. There was a experimental artist, MB, Maurizio Bianchi, who he uh, he did like you know just this this very like minimal, dreadful industrial music, uh, you know, noise, just that general area. And then he went through some kind of transformation where he started doing more, I don't know, I didn't really pay close attention to it, but from what I gather, it was more new agey. It was more enlightened, literally more light. I don't know about spiritually enlightened, but his presentation was lighter. And he addressed it, you know, he talked about how he, basically his earlier creativity was completely miserable. And how he felt the need to distance himself from that because he took a long break and then he reappeared and he was doing much lighter material and how he talked about how that was you know a reflection of this transformation and good for him you know but uh people didn't like it like i don't know that anybody took it personally but there were people who didn't like his newer records as much and you know what that might have happened no matter what the subject matter was a guy reappears after a long break 
and starts using his old name that he used to record under. You know, he, he could have been doing dark material and still gotten, you know, the same feedback he did. But it's just that it, I think it was much easier to see the difference. You know, it was much easier to notice that something had changed with this guy because the aesthetic changed, the attitude, the philosophy changed, and so did the music. So it's, it's pretty obvious. And then, you know, there were people who didn't like that. You know, there are people who thought, like, this isn't, this isn't the MB that I am a fan of. And I think there's probably a lot of people who just didn't care much and appreciated it regardless. But still, it's that sort of idea. And he could have easily just stayed attached to his earlier persona. You know, even though it wasn't something that he would have reaped any kind of, like, financial rewards from. Just some, like, minor amount of experimental music credibility that he was an early guy in that field an early performer you know so really all he was dealing with was his earlier credibility in a very niche field but good for him for not clinging on to that because you can see where people do that you can see where bands most bands because i'm of the opinion that most reunions even if it's just one individual restarting under their under a previous name most reunions most times that somebody brings back something that's already run its course doesn't usually work out it's not usually worth it the hype hangs over it like a a cliff that's going to crumble down on top of it but I, I think it's in general a bad idea and you see this all the time from bands who do reunions where it's like they're trying to reignite that place they were in. They're trying to capture that energy or, or maybe just cash in. But it also plays into what I've talked about before where it's like sometimes you start doing something, especially by the time you're an adult. Because you're continually told that like, oh, growing up is a period of experimentation. And it's accepted that, like, you're not... If you're really into Ninja Turtles at age five, it's readily understood that you're not going to be obsessed with the Ninja Turtles when you're 25. And then the Millennials appeared. Then we got the Millennials, who said, we're never going to grow out of Ninja Turtles. I'm going to wear a Ninja Turtle shirt. But, uh... But... Point being, like, you know, growing up, it's understood that you're going to go through a lot of phases. You're not going to stay interested in everything that you got interested in when you were five years old, or ten years old, or fifteen years old. And it's just, it's kind of accepted that you will change. But, you know, when you're an adult, people start holding on more. They've decided that this is me. This is the kind of person I am. And it's usually just this sort of backwash of who they were as a teenager. Or they just become really normal. Whatever normal is in the part of the country they live in, they just become that. With a little bit of this backwash from their teenage years. Whatever seemed a little bit daring or adventurous or you know against the current when they were a teenager, it's like this backwash of that just kind of like flows through every once in a while but uh people start holding on to their identity more 
by the time they're in adulthood. And, you know, that, of course, doesn't describe everybody. But there's a certain sort of person who they don't know what they would do. And they, they do it with their friend groups. They'll end up with a group of friends through some set of circumstances as, as an adult. And it, it'll be fine. You know, you'll have fun with those people. But you can see where people will really double down. They'll really double down and be like, we can't lose this. You know, we have to keep this alive. And it makes sense if you're part of a community with kids and you, know, you have some sort of grounding force. But now that we're in this zone where a lot of people don't have kids and they're part of these, like, these adult couple-based friend groups and things like that, and and like and they're just clinging for that. They just want this thing to stay alive. Like they want to feel like they're on the cast of Friends forever. And this isn't just my experience. I've experienced this from talking to friends of mine. They've experienced this. And it's it's like people start feeling like if they lose what they have, if they if they lose the identity they have right now as an adult, if they lose the little like insular gossipy group of friends they have where what are they going to have what are they going to have and the answer is possibly nothing you might very well not have much but that also might be liberating and i'm not saying like cut ties with your friends you know what i'm saying i would never encourage that i was just talking a few minutes ago about not burning bridges even if someone's really toxic not burning that bridge just letting it kind of naturally go um, but but sometimes these like you get walled in, and because you're over the the experimental phase of life, which is childhood and teenage years, you end up doubling down on who you think you are, as if you've gotten to the place that you need to go. Oh, you're 25 years old. Oh, you've you've gotten there. You're exactly where you need to go. But I think it adds another dimension to it that, like, you have so many childless friend groups. Or if there is a child, it's like a one-off novelty. And I don't belong in a group. I don't. I don't belong around people who have kids. You know, like it's fine. I get along with kids, but it's like, I'm not going to be in my element hanging out with like a bunch of parents, but I also know that. I also know that I can't relate to that part of their lives. And, uh, but you know, when you have these, these like people who are getting, you know, you know, I don't know, they, they just, they, they end up like doubling down on. They, they want everything to be an institution, basically. It's like, I'm an adult now, so everything in my life is, is, is an institution. And I can't afford to get rid of it. And so, you know, how much of that is just you being attached to this customized misery you've created? And maybe it's not even misery, maybe it's just boredom. Although boredom makes a lot of people miserable. They think, people think boredom has to be a lot more miserable than it actually is. Um, but, you know, how much of it is just boredom? 
and you know nothing will make you start customizing your surroundings nothing will start making you you know try to make your little corner of the world more unique than boredom I mean boredom leads to plenty of innovation it leads to plenty of unnecessary things too but you just think about that it's like when you're bored is when you feel the most desire to change that and you change that by being creative you change that by putting your unique spin on it you change that by interacting with your surroundings to the extent that you can but uh you don't want that to you don't want to be attached to that either like if you're in a waiting room and you're struggling not to be bored which even for me waiting rooms are just designed to just knock all of your interests out of your head truly purgatory you know speaking about purgatory on here recently waiting rooms are truly purgatory i think it's the closest and i feel like that's even how purgatory is depicted in like witty movies it's like the dmv is that in like beetlejuice or something they go to purgatory and they have to wait in line and get a ticket or something like that i feel like it's in some movie but it makes complete sense and so in a waiting room you know you're fighting your own boredom there's magazines now that you have a phone you can look at that but do you actually want to feel good in that situation like do you actually want to turn a fundamentally boring purgatorial situation like being in a waiting room or being at the D DMV do you want to actually make that interesting you know why not just embrace the fact that it's boring and endure it and be like that's a situation where there's nothing i can do to spin the to spin it in my favor there's nothing i can do to make that situation bearable and so I'm just going to sit there and endure it rather than fidget. Because, I mean, the thing is, like, I'll bring books to the waiting room thinking that that's going to work. You know, thinking that, oh, if I, if I bring a book to the waiting room, I might get to read a whole chapter. And, you know, the universe has a funny way of messing with you in that situation. Because it's like the day that you don't bring a book... You're in the waiting room for an hour with nothing to do. The day that you do bring a book is the day that you're like halfway through a chapter and they call your name, you know, where it's like, it's, it's, they're always, it's like, it's just funny how that works. Um, but it's like, do you really need to make that situation more interesting? Cause I mean, we're terrified of boredom. I mean, we think of boredom like torture. But it's like, do you need to change that situation? And I mean, I think you can apply that out to these other ideas I'm talking about, where it's like, do you need to make your misery unique? Or do you just need to stare it straight in the face and just let it be miserable, let it be not yours, do nothing to spin it, do nothing to mark it, just let it be whatever it is. Let that misery be something that other people share with you let it be something that ha doesn't have your signature on it for one you know maybe that's a better way of dealing with misery 
than making it your own, than trying to customize it. Maybe that's a better way of dealing with just about everything. <laughs> you know, maybe it is better to just let things that aren't serving you be. Just ignore them. Pretend they don't exist. Now, I know that's not good advice because everyone says you have to address things, but I think you can address something without personalizing it, without decorating it without making yourself more attached to it. I don't think you need to customize your boredom or customize your misery or customize any other negative feeling, negative situation you find yourself in. And you should actually save some of that energy for good things. Because you know what? It's much more difficult to customize what's good. It's much more difficult to put a unique spin on pure goodness and positivity, which is why so much of it looks so unattractive. You know, you think about the positivity industry and how unattractive its aesthetic is. And what's really unfortunate is that kept me away. One of the reasons why I reveled in my own negativity for so long was because the aesthetics of positivity, which it turns out doesn't look like anything, Actual positivity, actual goodness, doesn't look like anything. But it's been decorated in such a way, it's been branded in such a way, that like something that looks like it belongs on a housewife's wall represents it. And that's not what you want as a young man. The last thing you want to identify with as a young man is like a, a home is where the heart is, painting. You know, so it's that's a, a major barrier that you have to cross. Aesthetics, the power of association. But you have to remember that this doesn't look like anything. Positivity doesn't look like anything. And so don't get, it, don't get caught up in thinking that the way that it's been branded, the way that it's been presented to you, the way that industries capitalize on it and sell positivity to people, particularly women who are seeking self-care, you know, that doesn't actually represent it at all. And maybe it does to somebody else, but it doesn't have to represent it to you. But one of the reasons why that's such a barrier is because people haven't done a whole lot with it. It is much more difficult to make positivity and goodness unique. And I don't think that's just a coincidence. I think it's because those things tend to represent the wholeness, the collective, actual shared values. And so it does kind of end up being this common denominator. And that doesn't always make for the most appealing visual, the most appealing aesthetic. And so that's sort of the trick of it, is getting past that, at least for someone like me. 
like someone who's very, very sensitive to aesthetics. Very, very sensitive to aesthetics. No, but as someone who is sensitive to those things, it's it's a huge roadblock for me. And it was, and it still is. I mean, it's it's like the bad guys always look cooler. That's another one. Where when I was growing up, and I, would, I mean, you think about Transformers, Soundwave. He doesn't even have a mouth. You know, his mouth is covered by this, like, metal face covering. And he's just this, you know, he's a cassette player. But he looks really cool. He looks cooler than the good guys. You know, you, you just think about how, like, so often in stories, bad guys are cooler looking. Which led to the whole anti-hero trend in comics and pop culture of the 90s, early 2000s, where we started to get into the idea of good guys who look like bad guys and do good guy things, but have kind of a dilemma about it. Spawn being probably the most famous example. He looks like a bad guy. He's from hell. He does good things. But he sits around having an existential crisis about it all the time. So that was the anti-hero phase. It was a way of being like, we're going to market. We, we recognize that kids and everybody, for that matter, thinks bad guys look really cool. And Batman is old hat. Because Batman was like... Batman dressed all in black. Like when they, when they turned Batman into like the Dark Knight... That was sort of an early version of that. You know, I've talked about on here before, years ago probably, about how Batman is not an anti-hero. But they were going for that. It was like testing the waters almost. You know, Batman, the Dark Knight version of Batman, is in many ways, it was kind of like a prototype for the anti-heroes of the 90s. Kind of a, a prototype for Spawn. But the reason for that is because people got sick of, like, neon costumes. They started to think that Superman didn't look that cool anymore. The bright colors weren't that cool. Oh, cool, he's a guy who wears bright primary colors. People lost interest in that. And I would say that's true for just our entire culture. Like, we kind of lost interest in the idea of just the sort of generic good guy. And then the, the housewares version of that are just like decorations with mass-produced paintings of like hearts and flowers and platitudes. Eckhart Tolle quotes. You know, and, and why why would you possibly... If you're an 18-year-old boy, 16-year-old boy, 21-year-old boy, why would you be drawn to that? And if you think that in your mind that is somehow an accurate representation of those ideas, you're not going to want those ideas either. You're not going to want to use the word love. If you think that the visual representation of love is a mug with a watercolor heart painted on it that says good times, like if, you, if that's what you think love is, you're not going to want that. So there's a huge barrier there 
And then there's also a barrier in the, your ego wants to make things yours. And it's a lot easier to do that with misery. Misery fits in a lot more cracks. You know, it, it, misery is much more easily shaped. But it's also an illusion. Because you convince yourself that you've created something that's yours. Meanwhile, it's just plain old generic misery. And the worst feeling in the world is to think that you've actually done something meaningful with your misery, only to find out it was just generic Play-Doh all along. And there's nothing distinct about it. There's nothing truly yours about it. But a lot of it, too, is just the way things are framed, you know? Like, I've talked about positive nihilism. Like, having the realization, you know, at some point where I was like, you know, the, the most nihilistic thing that someone can do is take care of themselves in the face of doom. Like, if we were told that a comet was coming tomorrow, and I was supposed to lift weights, like, oh, a comet's coming, it's bigger than the Earth. A comet is going to destroy the Earth. You'd probably say, oh, you know, I don't really need to do my workout. You might do something hedonistic. You might want to enjoy all of the pleasures that you possibly can during your last day on Earth. But you know what? In that situation, the most nihilistic thing you can do is actually lift weights or go for a run. The most nihilistic thing you can do in the face of certain doom, it, it really is just to uh, do something that's good for you. Do some, something that's healthy, that might not be entirely pleasurable. And so you can kind of reframe nihilism that way and use it to your advantage to say, here's this thing that in the end probably won't matter. I mean, I'm, I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't necessarily agree that taking care of yourself doesn't matter because I think it does prepare you in some way for death. If there is something beyond, who knows, but it could prepare you for that as well. I mean, there's a reason why the Tibetan Book of the Dead talks about some of these different practices, even doing them one time, even meditating on some of the concepts it discusses one time, they say will better prepare you for death, will prepare your spirit for the moment after death. So, you know, an you know, it'll prepare you an immeasurable amount more than if you had never done it. So I don't necessarily think that these things you do are all for nothing because you're going to die and that's it. Sam Harris says you die and that's it. Somehow Sam Harris knows what happens to the, you know, I'm not going to get into it, but it's just that sort of thing where if you do kind of embrace this nihilism where it's like, well, hey, nothing matters, so I might as well just do what's pleasurable. I would recommend try doing good things in the name of nihilism. That to me is liberation. 
I don't think nihilism motivates me in any way whatsoever, honestly, but at a certain now, but at a certain point, I do think it did. I think when I started getting into fitness, I sort of took this mentality of this really doesn't matter. This isn't going to fundamentally change my life and make it more worthwhile or less worthwhile when I'm on my deathbed. But why don't I just do this just because there's something kind of absurd about it. There's something kind of absurd about taking care of yourself despite the fact that you don't get to keep yourself. Taking care of your body even though you don't get to keep your body forever. I kind of enjoy the absurdity of that. But the interesting thing about it is the more you do it, the less absurd it feels. And the better you feel. So whatever absurdity and nihilism existed beforehand is gone. And in my case, I don't think it's just physical fitness doing that. I mean, I think it was sort of the total package of just making an effort in every respect. Reprogramming the way I think, too. Developing other practices. But I would recommend taking that approach to something. Say to yourself, I'm going to do something that's good for me, but I'm going to do it in the spirit of nihilism. Because trying to be as healthy as possible, knowing that I'm going to die someday, is actually more nihilistic in a way than being like, well, my body's going to be destroyed on its own someday, so I might as well destroy it quicker. To me, that's less nihilistic in a funny way. It's more purposeful. <laughs> but you do find that like, when you do good things, when you do healthy things in the name of nihilism, you'll find that whatever nihilism was there just kind of dissipates. You no longer feel that way about it. It starts to become meaningful. Something like just lifting heavy objects, going for a run, walking, being conscious of what you eat. Suddenly all of that starts to feel like a meaningful part of your system. Because it is. You realize that it is. And you realize that no aesthetic controls you. No interest of yours controls you. No identity that you formed when you were 17 years old still controls you. And so whatever you want to call it, liberation, freedom, doesn't really make a difference. The point is, is when you feel that, you know you have it. But it can be so hard to feel that way. And you yourself wall yourself in. And you do that every time that you take something that isn't actually serving you. And you think that by putting your name on it, by putting your little twist on it, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna make this sculpture out of my misery, and that's gonna be my misery. Sounds like clutter. Sounds like something else that you're going to fill your hoarder den with and come up with some excuse for not getting rid of it. 
Just let it dissipate. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.